0: God we know uh, as we sing and as we uh, rest in your presence as we're attentive and as we uh, give to you our worship as we love you with all of our heart's mind soul and strength we know uh, that to be a place uh, of goodness a place where things are rightly ordered uh, a time and a place and a situation in which uh, we sense your glory and your goodness where we have the opportunity uh, to reflect how you have shined on us and to give that back to you in praise. We ask that as we uh, open your word, as we talk about uh, things in your word uh, together, that you would help us to be similarly inclined. Help us to see you. Help us to uh, bring you pleasure and delight and glory. Uh, May the meditations of our hearts uh, be pleasing in your sight. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart if my words should stray in any any way uh, from your word. May they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. I want to begin just by getting us into the scriptures by reading from Acts chapter 17 as an example of kind of uh, what Paul does with uh, people who are wrestling with faith, who have questions about God, who are seekers. Paul's in Athens, and uh, he's at a place called the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where uh, it's kind of the world global center of conversation and uh, cognitive exploration, where philosophies are shared and explored together. So this is what we read in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is the babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, kind of this council of learned people where they said to him may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said men of Athens I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they may inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine, is being, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent or change their mind. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. He has given proof of this to all people by raising this Jesus from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And so uh, we've received a number of uh, questions uh, over the last two or three days, And I'm just going to go through them one at a time, read the questions as they came to us and to me, and then uh, respond as best I'm able in a few minutes. So here we go. First question, why is the Bible in the order it is rather than chronological order? Other books about history or things that occurred in the past are structured chronologically. Why isn't the Bible that way? And this just happened to be the first question, but it's a great question to start with because our faith is grounded in the scriptures. It's where we find our foundation. We are people of the word and always have been as Christians. The word Biblia, from which we get the English word Bible, means the books. The Bible is a library of books, at least 35 different authors, maybe as many as 40 Uh, contributed as authors to what we have today as the Bible over approximately 1,500 years. It didn't just fall from heaven, as some people might imagine. It didn't just appear it wasn't uh, a revelation or delivered in the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, The Bible came together much more complexly than that. It could not have been contained originally in one bound book as we know books today, Writing was originally on stone tablets and then it moved from there to clay and then writing was on wood and then writing was on metal and eventually writing was on uh, parchments or papyrus first and these long scrolls that were as long as 35 feet. And you could get on a, a 35 foot scroll which is about as long as they could reasonably roll those things up before they started to break about the length of the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. So if you follow that, Uh, we know backwards that people couldn't just carry the Bible under their arms or the Scriptures or the Word of God. They couldn't carry it in their phone on an app. But instead, the Scriptures or the Word of God was this library, literally, of these big scrolls. And so that was how people had the Word of God. And they didn't keep them all in one neat order necessarily. They were kind of all over the place uh, and couldn't be packaged neatly in order. Nevertheless, Uh, When the Bible was put together in a uniform, compact uh, way in what we have as the Bible today, it started with Genesis, which is the oldest of the books, we believe, and begins in the beginning. And so you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and all of those, the first seven books of the Bible, really happen in chronological order. And then things begin to fray a bit from there. We see in the Old Testament in particular that the books of the Bible, when they're not chronological, they are grouped according to genre. First in books of history, and then in books of poetry or the writings, as uh, the Hebrew people call them, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon all go together as a genre that fit in different ways uh, into kind of a neat package. And then there are the prophets, first the major prophets, not because they were more important, but because they were longer. And then what are called the minor prophets, not because they weren't significant, but because they were shorter. And this was simply the way that made sense to those who put together the Bible according to God's inspiration, made sense. The New Testament follows the same sort of pattern there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John, and they come first, and then the book of Acts, which is really volume two of the book of Luke, but there probably wasn't uh, room on a single scroll to write all of that, so Luke had two volumes. And then comes Acts, which comes chronologically next, and then the books of the Bible aren't really in sequence anymore, but are rather put together by author. And so all of the books that the Apostle Paul wrote come together, beginning with Romans, which may have been Uh, the most important to the early church, and the most comprehensive, uh, and also one of the longest, go into shorter books of Paul. And then came books by other authors, finally uh, ending up with the book of Revelation. If you want to read the Bible chronologically, uh, it has been put together and repackaged that way by a variety of publishers today called the Chronological Bible, and you can get that in the King James Version or the New Living uh, Bible And I encourage you to read the Bible in that way if that's helpful to you. Uh, A few years ago, we went through the book, uh, a book called The Story, which takes all of the scriptures from the New International Version and kind of reorders them all so that they are perfectly chronological. And that was a great study too. I encourage you to read a book called How We Got Our Bible if you want to go more uh, deeply into this by a guy named Neil Lightfoot and uh, explore for yourself about how our Bible came together and how the Word of God ended up in the form that we have it today. So that's a good foundational question. Next question is, why do some churches or denominations not let women be in leadership roles, for example, ministers, as we do? We talk plenty of times about how to study the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. Uh, People ask, should I read the Bible Literally, should I take the Bible metaphorically? And I've always answered that question: neither. But we should always read and study and interpret the Bible contextually. Understand the context of which in which the Bible uh, and anything you've read was written, when it was written, to whom it was written, by whom it was written, why it was written, where it was written, and what was going on in the place and the situation, where or when or to whom. It was written, the background, the worldview, the people, the cultures, tradition. Understanding all of that is key to reading the Bible. First we need to know how it all came together, and then we need to remember to always read the Bible contextually. One of my professors in seminary uh, handed out buttons on the first day of Old Testament, uh, of our Old Testament survey class, and they said, think Hebrew. And that was a great adjustment that we all needed to make in reading the Old Testament. We needed to think like a Hebrew in order to best understand the Old Testament. We couldn't think like a 21st century American in order to best understand the Hebrew Bible. We re- instead needed to think like a Hebrew. And that's the same in this situation as well. In the, in the Bible, uh, if we look all the way back to Genesis 1, both man and woman are made in God's image. Both are totally equal to rule or to have dominion over the fish, birds, animals. Uh, We go through the scriptures and we see examples even early on of, uh, for example, a woman who was a judge and ruled over all of Israel, led all of Israel named Deborah. There's an instance where one of her generals uh, is told, commanded to go off to war. His name was Barak, and he said, there's no way I'm going without you into war, Deborah. And so Deborah says, uh, so Deborah went to, with Barak, and this is in Judges chapter 4. So Je- Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under her command. Deborah went up also with him, and she said uh, explicitly, you're doing this because I'm a woman. And so God loves men. God loves women. God equips. God empowers a woman, women just like he does men. But we have to understand that the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament were written in highly, highly patriarchal societies. We live today in a less patriarchal and a decreasingly patriarchal society. So even though the the Old Testament, New Testament were written in patriarchal societies, God continually raises up and gives prominent roles to women throughout Think of Esther, think of Mary, think of Je- uh, Elizabeth in Jesus' birth. Think of Anna, the prophetess, or the speaker of God's word uh, in the book of Luke at the, uh, in, the go- in the narrative of Jesus' birth. In each of the Gospels, it was a woman who first encountered Jesus after his resurrection. All four of the Gospels tell that a little differently, but it's in each case a woman who first sees and encounters Jesus after his resurrection. In the book of Acts, in the uh, next section right after I read just a moment ago, there's a husband and wife team in ministry and their names are Priscilla and Aquila. And they go and they minister with Paul. They teach Apollos, another leader in the early church. And interestingly, uh, Priscilla's name is listed before Aquila's name. And it's usually the more prominent person in the Bible who's listed first. It's the woman in this marriage ministry couple who's given prominence. Similarly, throughout the New Testament, we see these subtle references to women who have places and roles of prominence, including as prophetesses uh, and communicators or preachers of God's Word in uh, Paul's letters in particular. And so uh, our experience has been in reading the Scriptures that though uh, many churches pull out one or two passages, namely from uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy in the second chapter, verses 11 and 12, where he says women should keep silent uh, in the assembly and learn from their husbands at home, uh, that those were primarily, we understand, contextual situations. And Uh, Women had been given this new freedom. They were all of a sudden speaking out in the church. It was disrupting the status quo of what was normal at that time in that culture, in that context, and becoming a stumbling block to some in the church. And so Paul says, in this situation for your church, it's better not to disrupt the whole assembly and to cause a stumbling block for some. So for you, uh, learn from your husband at home. But most of the time throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus as an empowerer of women and a liberator of women. Our experience has also been that we have heard women and had women speak the Word of God just as powerfully and just as faithfully as men have in this sanctuary, in our lives, in the American context. So every context is different, but we believe that women are empowered to be deacons, to be elders— And four of our nine elders right now are women, and to be preachers, uh, to be pastors in our congregation. We believe that all people are made in the image of God and given the variety of gifts for ministry. Paul doesn't say as he's talking to the uh, church in Corinth that these gifts are just for men and these gifts are just for women. But rather all of these gifts are for all of God's people. Third question, there seems to be a thin line between acceptance and agreeing. I think accepting someone as a person does not equate to agreeing with their beliefs. What does, quote, accepting one another mean in the Scriptures? The diversity in the world is beautiful and also overwhelming. I've practiced how to agree to disagree, but there are times that I question myself. Is this what Jesus would like me to do? And I want to read from uh, the closest place in the Scriptures to using these exact words is probably Paul's toward the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15, beginning at verse 7. Paul writes, Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you. God does not agree with us. God does not agree with me much of the time. It's not even God's role to agree with me, but mine to agree with him. But God does not agree with me, but God accepts me. And that's a really good thing. And that's the foundational truth here in our question about do uh, we have to agree with people to accept people? No, we don't. But we all are called to love people. We don't have to love everything about them. We don't have to affirm everything about them. We don't have to agree with the things they assert or live by or how or who they are. But we are called to recognize the image of God in people, to recognize that image, to accept them as fellow human beings, as brothers and sisters in the human race, and as if they are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to see them this way and it's okay to agree to disagree without giving up our convictions, uh, without withholding our convictions from a situation. To agree to disagree doesn't mean there aren't absolute truths, doesn't mean there isn't good and bad, but the way forward is to accept one another even as we don't agree. If we don't do that, then we end up only uh, being in a relationship with, fellowship with, or a church with people with whom we exactly agree. And there actually are no other people who will agree with any of us about everything. And so we end up living on an island of our own. Paul says over and over, bear with one another for the sake of unity. And unity is a thing that uh, we don't have a lot of in our culture and in many churches today. But unity is really important in the church and to the church. And so Jesus calls us, the scriptures call us, Paul calls us to accept one another, not to live in uniformity or perfect agreement in all things, but to live in unity, accepting one another. Apart from that, there is no way forward for us as the human race. Jesus' uh, way is to love our enemies, and we don't ever agree with our enemies on big things. It's not our job to uh, accept or to agree with other people it is our job to accept other people. Next question. Having studied in science, I've always wondered what really happens when a human being dies. Does a person cease to exist? Does a person enter heaven? Is there an afterlife? And this reminds me that each one of these questions really is a sermon series in itself and not uh, just a part of a Uh, A small part of a sermon, someone, a pastor friend yesterday yesterday said to me, you're actually crazy to do this. What you should be doing is beginning a series of sermons called Questions I'd Rather You Not Ask. Uh, But I I need to get more succinct in my responses. Does a person cease to exist when a human being dies? We know that a a person's body a person's body decays. And in that sense, a person's body ceases to exist. But we do not believe, and the sort of the historical perspective through the scriptures is complicated and nuanced, but we do not believe that a person, an entity, loved by God, made in God's image, ceases to exist, but continues to be in a a state that we can't necessarily understand But we do understand what comes later on more clearly in the Scriptures. Does a person enter heaven? And to that question, I would say, yes, but nuanced. Again, we've talked about this often this year, that we think of heaven as up there and after we die. But Jesus talks about heaven in a way that he talks similarly about eternal life, which Jesus says begins now. We are invited into now. So heaven in one sense, the heavens where God dwells in our midst in eternity is available to us now. Does a person enter heaven when they die by the grace of God and through the blood of Christ? That person is already halfway into, if we can use that language, heaven but yes enters into a realm and a reality where they see as Paul says to the Corinthians see God face to face a part of which or which is one way we describe heaven is there an afterlife and again the scriptures don't use that word but the scriptures talk about Jesus going ahead of us to prepare a place for us and Jesus was die he was crucified dead and buried and resurrected and the scriptures talk about that resurrection of Jesus being the first fruits from among the dead. Uh, teaching that all people will be raised to a day of judgment. And that that is called the resurrection. And in the resurrection, those who are with Christ will receive new bodies. And just as Jesus' resurrection body was different than his earthly body, so we will receive new bodies, reconstituted uh, that are heavenly bodies, that are different than these bodies, but that are bodies nonetheless. All of this is the linchpin on which the gospel rests, the linchpin on which Christianity and the scriptures rest. Yes, there is a resurrection. Yes, Jesus was raised from the dead. Yes, all of our hope is in a life beyond and in addition to these bodies. Uh, A good picture, if we want the clearest picture of heaven Uh, we would go to the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, uh, that describe in more uh, animated terms uh, and, and words what heaven may look like or be like. Next question is, what is the difference between righteous anger and human anger? And to that, I would say a clearer dichotomy may be between righteous anger and unrighteous anger the latter of which is more common in human beings, or at least in me. There's holy anger and unholy anger. There's godly anger and ungodly anger. Clearly, there are plenty of times in the scriptures where God is described as being angry, as getting angry, as having a righteous anger. But God's anger is always justified. It is righteous. It is pure, holy, true, good, and necessary. It is a part of his nature. It comes out of his commitment to justice and out of his love for people and wanting what is best for people. As I said last Sunday, the Hebrew words for righteous and justice are very closely related. If we take that one step further, the question becomes, what is the difference between just anger and unjust anger? And we can sort that out in our human world, in our human ways. Very often, unjust anger is me wanting something for me, about me, for myself, selfishly, rather than for justice, which takes into consideration the whole common good, those who can't take care of themselves, the quartet of vulnerables, as we talked about last week. Uh, Paul wrote to the Ephesians that we should be angry, but not sin, that we should be careful when we are angry. Jesus talked about anger in the Sermon on the Mount and said that we should be very delicate, very, very careful with our anger, that we should be slow to anger, that anger about sin can be right and justified. But the first anger about sin should be about our own and toward ourselves. Dallas Willard said that anything that can be done with anger can be done better without anger. And there may be some truth to that. We've heard in the last couple of weeks uh, people saying that uh, they should, they will burn things down. They will flip over police cars. They will do violence if that's what it takes to be heard. Uh, expressing their anger and their righteous indignation in those ways. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. would seem to disagree with those things. Be angry and do not sin. Uh, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians, do not not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Bonhoeffer, in his uh, kind of overview or commentary on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Jesus will not accept the common distinction between righteous indignation and unjustifiable anger. The disciple must be entirely innocent of anger because anger is an offense against both God and his neighbor, or at least unrighteous anger, unjustifiable anger. Instead, instead he talks about how our motivations should always be not out of anger, but out of love. We're given permission and called always to be motivated out of love and by love rather than anger. The next question is, what if ever is it okay to react? uh, When, if ever, is it okay to react how Jesus did in the temple when he tossed the tables, when he flipped the tables of the money changers and those selling uh, animals for sacrifices? Uh, Again, this is similar or follow up to the other question. And I would say, uh, Jesus has the right to do that. I don't have the right to do that. Jesus is righteous, holy, always justified, and can do those things. That for me, uh, I'm not in that place, and what Jesus was doing was not a model for things for me to do. Jesus didn't say, go and do likewise, as he did when he washed his disciples' feet or told his disciples to go and baptize. This was not something that he said was reproducible or that we were to do regularly. He doesn't give us permission for that. Uh, rather, it was a one-time event to demonstrate, almost metaphorically, uh, his cleansing of the temple, uh, his flipping over the injustice in the temple at that time, and creating a new way in himself and through himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Next question, what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law but did not abolish it? What Old Testament laws are we required to still follow and how to differentiate which ones we are not to follow? Again, this is sort of a long and complicated story, but it goes back to something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verses 17, 18, 19, 20. What does it mean that Jesus, when he says that he came to fulfill the law? And there are a couple of different ways of understanding that. One is that Jesus actually fills up the law. He raises it up. He fills in the places where it was even lacking. He raises the bar, which he goes on to do over and over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say, do not look at a woman lustfully. Uh, Over and over, Jesus raises the bar with regard to the law and goodness and what. And so in that way, he's filling it up. And in other sense, Jesus fulfills or satisfies the law because none of us is going to be able to fulfill or do or complete or satisfy even the Old Testament laws, much less Jesus' higher bar. We can't uh, love one another perfectly. We can't love our enemies. We can't live completely without lust or without anger. We don't always tell the complete truth. And so in that way, We can't fulfill the law, but Jesus takes our place and fills the law as the perfect sacrifice without sin, without blemish. Dying in our place and thus fulfilling the law as the, again, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in that sense and in those senses, among others maybe, Jesus fulfills the law. A different question that's similar and related though is what Old Testament laws are we required to still follow and how to differentiate which ones we are not to follow. And if we take all of the Old Testament laws, they fall into three or sometimes four different categories. Not always uh, explicitly delineated, but pretty clear when we look at them uh, and stand back. They are the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. And the ceremonial law included all of those laws around uh, sacrifices and temple worship. Very cultural for the Jewish people. Had to do with being clean and making oneself clean and uh, physical cleanliness that led to ceremonial cleanliness. Preparing the people to go into the temple as cleanly as they could to worship God. Those we see in the New Testament are mostly set aside and not uh, held on to uh, very closely. The civil laws help the Jewish people as a society moving through the wilderness and then established in the promised land uh, to live well together. And we still need those kind of laws today, but those laws aren't always as applicable or easy to be applied in our society as they were in this mobile society of Jewish people moving through the wilderness for 40 years. Then there is the moral law, Uh, the direct commands of God, such as the Ten Commandments, that go to work on our hearts. And almost all of those are still keepable. Jesus acknowledges them. These are the ones that he embraces and raises the bar in uh, as well. And these we certainly are to continue to keep. So there's the ceremonial law, which includes in some ways the dietary laws, do eat this, don't eat this, which distinguish the Jewish people from Uh, the different peoples, tribes, nations around them, the ceremonial law, uh, the dietary laws. You can kind of set those aside and eat your shrimp or crawfish or other things. You can wear clothes that uh, are polyester cotton blends, and that's okay today. Uh, Some of the civil laws we don't need to keep, but all of the moral laws about honoring our father and mother, about not envying, about... Uh, not uh, committing adultery, about not lying, about not telling the truth. Uh, Those we're all still joyfully obligated to keep, for which we thank God. Next question, why is it that in the church the more popular stories, passages, uh, for example, Jonah, Abraham, Moses, are often taught repeatedly, but the less popular stories, books, Esther, Habakkuk, Balaam, are not talked about? Is that uh, because some are more rated PG than others or, or more happy? Or is it that some verses are more important to building one's faith than other verses? And that's a great question. Uh, in the scriptures, there are the possibility of tens of thousands of sermons, lessons, uh, curricula that could be taught or studied or learned. And so we can't uh, cover all of those. And so we often pick out the most relevant, the most important, which Jesus himself was willing to do. Uh, a scribe, a teacher of the law, a Jewish leader comes to Jesus and says, what are the most important commands? Which one is most important? And Jesus doesn't hesitate. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And we've talked about how he united those. The commands of love take precedent over the commands to make the uh, tabernacle with this kind of fabric and have this kind of uh, linen and have this kind of that. Though those passages in the Old Testament are important, there are other passages that seem just to be more urgent in our daily lives. And so we do tend to focus on the 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 of those uh, more important passages rather than the obscure ones about uh, um, how to, how to uh, cook your food, for example, in the Old Testament. Uh, a variety of things. So we do take, uh, try to uh, have priorities for the ways that we study the scriptures. If I was a soccer coach, for example, I would uh, train my uh, players to focus on the major elements of becoming a good soccer player instead of trying to teach them all how how to do a bicycle kick, which none of them would probably ever utilize. So instead of committing every practice to, we're gonna learn the bicycle kick, which probably never comes in handy. Nevertheless, all of the scriptures are God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuke, correcting, righteousness. And so we would encourage people over the course of their lives to study the entire Word of God. Uh, The common lectionary embraced by many churches attempts to do this in a a rhythmic way over the course of three years. Uh, Many people read through the Bible in a year uh, or take it upon themselves to read through books of the Bible, which we've done Uh, periodically so that we're not skipping over the hard parts and just uh, studying the easy parts or the happy parts, as the person who asked this question uh, says. Uh, Pastors uh, can be uh, um, cowardly and avoid some of the uh, harder parts of Scripture, so we need to always be paying attention to what we're trying to avoid in the Scriptures and to jump into those hard passages of Scripture because frequently that's uh, what God most wants us to attend to and work on through ourselves. I preached a couple of years ago on uh, the passage of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts where Ananias and Sapphira are struck down uh, because uh, they didn't give fully. They didn't commit their tithe. They weren't transparent in their giving with the body of Christ. Uh, Not many people preach on that passage of Scripture, Uh, but we need to pay attention to all of the uh, all of the scriptures, as we have time. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm looking at the time and know that we're over. Uh, I'm gonna uh, probably just take a couple of more and then maybe pick up some next week if that seems good. What does Jesus command to die to self look like in our American context in 2020 during COVID? What does Jesus command to die to self look like in our American context in 2020 during COVID? Uh, We actually talked about this way back uh, three and a half months ago during the first Sundays of Shelter in Place. And we saw that Jesus called his people, his followers, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily and follow me or walk in my steps, live as I do. It's an essential part of being in Christ, of following Jesus, of entering into eternal life even And so it's not something that we can discard as one of the hard or not happy passages of Scripture, but instead wrestle with it continually, and especially in this season of COVID, where we are uh, living with greater risk. And Jesus calls his people, he does, he always has, into risky situations, into places that are dangerous, into ways where we may suffer. We're not called to seek out suffering but we are called to be open to following Jesus into places where we may suffer, including dying to ourselves, including even maybe dying physically, uh, experiencing physical suffering, sickness, and death. We talked early on about how the early church during the first 100 and 200 years experienced incredible pandemics that killed large percentages of people in the Mediterranean world. And the church was not immune, but instead the church stepped up and went, ran to those who were suffering from diseases instead of running away from them. And in doing so, gave glory to God and experienced something of eternal life in that. They experienced, uh, sociologists and historians actually think Christians began to uh, develop a herd immunity when others didn't because they were running to Uh, that which could kill, but they were doing so in faith and they were doing so in hope and they were doing so in trust. And most of all, they were doing so in love, which God honored. And so we are called to die to ourselves, which uh, means listening to other people during the season, which means putting other people first, which means taking on the perspective of other people Which means, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, thinking first of other people and then of ourselves, putting ourselves second, which is a kind of death for us. It's easy to talk about. It's hard to do. But in following Jesus, we are called to lay down our lives for other people as Jesus did. To die to self and so uh, to live in him. In the interest of time, I'm going to uh, wrap it up there. I've got uh, a stack more of questions, including the hardest one, which is a couple of questions away, uh, and maybe we'll pick those up uh, next week. Uh, I see a few questions coming in now, and I'm sorry that I don't have time to get to those. But we will uh, do that again either next week or in another way. Uh, In all things, uh, let's submit ourselves to the Lord trusting that he knows things that we don't and that he is good and that he is loving and that he is love and that we can put our whole selves out with him, trusting him with our lives and that we will be okay and more than that, that we uh, will have life and that we will have it abundantly. Let's pray together. All of us, God, uh, here on earth, here in our shoes, in our experiences, have what seems uh, on some days feels like more questions than answers. We want to know, we long to know things that we can't yet see or at least see clearly. Bring the reality of your kingdom into us and among us. Help us to live fully and abundantly in you, trusting you. Bring about your kingdom, not just after we die, but in our midst, in the world, for your glory and for the well-being of your people and the earth. Bring these things about, we ask in the name of Jesus, who is Savior and Teacher and Master and Lord, who is sacrificial lamb and who is king on his throne. We pray these things in his name, amen.